Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, well, that fiscal crisis was averted. Oh, no, we'll take it up again in December. What's the aftermath? What's the fallout? Who are the winners and losers after we reopen government? We're also going to be talking about the president. He is back in the spotlight. Obamacare doesn't seem to be working as far as the website's concerned. And the passive voice of the White House is continuing to be criticized. That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It is Tuesday, which means that the roundtable is gathered here at Shelley's, and joining me as he does every Tuesday, he is freshly returned from his trip across the continent. He is the former congressman representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He's Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Which means I've crossed the continent's... Yeah, many, many times. We'll talk about that later. To my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman General R. Ford, former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He's the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. Uh, Glad to have you. And to my 12 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and handsome and very tan fellow after coming back from California. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hi, Alan. Justin, I just want to say to Al, it's better to be crossing continents than to be in continents. <laughs> <laughs> what if you're both? I, I, <laughs> we're starting early, aren't we, kids? We're starting early here at Backroom Politics. Uh, to my one o'clock, he is the former head of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He's longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And- Hello out there from quiet Washington, D.C. Yeah, it is quiet, at least for right now. And to my right, ironically, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives. She's the former Obama appointee as General Counsel for the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krep. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And joining us this Tuesday, because uh, we're working and actually on the air today, he <laughs> is our special guest. He is the former representative of Pennsylvania's great 10th district, the, for fighting the, ten. the Finding Ten. He is the representative of the Great Keystone State. He is uh, Chris Carney. Hi, Representative Carney. How are you doing, Congressman? I'm very well, Justin. Thanks for Glad joining us. Oh, thanks here. for joining us. Hey, uh, in, in case you've been living under a rock or you've been living somewhere out in the Maldives, uh, we fixed the fiscal problem temporarily. We've kicked this battered, rusted, hold can down another 100 yards down the road, only to have to take it up again in, what, three months now? It is three months, basically. So we got 90-day reprieve before we have to go through this rigmarole all over again. Uh, There are so many winners, so many losers in all this, but Alan Moore, let's start with you real quick. Um, What's your takeaway from the deal that came out? And give us some of the specifics that the general electorate should know about. 
Well, the, the, the deal was basically something we talked about several weeks ago of keeping the CR and the debt limit joined, shorten the time on the debt limit from the year that people, that the administration and the Democrats wanted, uh, to a month, a couple months. What they've done is they've, they've uh, taken the, the continuing resolution, the big spending bill, in mid-January, and they've, and they've set a date on the debt limit, which is different than the dollar number that they normally have for the debt limit, a date of February 7th. So these two are going to move forward. And in the meantime, um, the, the, they have set up a joint sort of super committee. I hate to use that term because that term has been the kiss of death in the past. Are you talking about the gang but of that's, six? That's what it is. It's, you know, but it's a bigger gang this time, House and Senate members. Uh, ostensibly around uh, the, the budget resolutions, but it's a, it's a committee that involves not just budget committee members, and the, they, they have until December 13th to try, to try to come up with some sort of a larger bargain. I won't call it a grand bargain because that just seems out of reach, but a bargain that would bring into question whether we still live with the sequester, maybe we can take a look at the entitlements which are really the big problem. But the interesting problem. part of this, Alan, is this, as you had said, was some sort of like Uber hybrid committee. This isn't exactly what we would consider a budget conference in the traditional sense. Is that accurate? It's, that's right. Normally a budget conference would just be members of the budget committee. But they have the ability to build on the two very different budget resolutions in the Senate and the House and a process that's called reconciliation, right. which allows you to make decisions with less than a supermajority, but it's not at all clear that this group will come together, uh, but there's at least going to be a serious uh, effort in the next two months right. to see if they can uh, find common ground. Con Congressman Chris Carney, uh, the selection is, is basically the two chairs, um, one for the House, one for the Senate. Uh, Paul Ryan for the House, Chairman of the Budget Committee, interesting choice, mm -hmm. as was Patty Murray, also Chairman of the Budget Committee, but not exactly a focal point for Democrats as far as the budget goes, where she hasn't been a rising star as far as budget concerns in a lot of the eyes of the electorate. Well, you know the old, old saying that in Congress there's two kinds of horses, workhorses and show horses, and she's been a workhorse. And uh, to a certain extent, I think she gives credibility to the process. She's not about promoting Patty Murray, like some other senators may be about promoting their own agendas. I think she's seriously uh, interested in getting some kind of resolution on this and getting the government tracking back like it ought to, getting back to something that <laughs> resembles regular order. Right. But Bob Hines, Paul Ryan, I mean, everybody looks at Paul Ryan. He's largely been looked at on a bipartisan uh, basis in the House as a thought leader in budget process. This guy's a numbers wonk. Does he have the, the political street credibility also to work with the damn majority in the Senate to get a deal done? I think so, yes. He's got more uh, public awareness uh, features, certainly, than Patty Murray does. But they're the same kind of people in the sense that they both know the numbers and they both know the, the thing they're going to have to do is work a deal out. Now, whether they're, it's possible, it won't really be what the two of them want, there's going to be 18 other members of that committee, plus the leaderships in both houses, 
you know, you know, beating them down one way or another because some people want a solution and some people don't. But I think the two of them are both good leaders uh, to begin with. Congressman Al. And I think in this particular instance, it's not so much a matter of who is known and respected outside of the Congress as it is who is known and respected inside. And both Paul Ryan and Patty Murray, I think, had the respect of their colleagues. And Denise Crap. I think there's one example we can look to uh, going forward. There was a program that was fully funded in the continuing resolution, and that was the Maritime Security Program. And it was fully funded on a bipartisan basis. Uh, a lot of people went out and said, hey, wait a second, we need, and you're not going to believe this, $12 million to make sure that we have the merchant ships to be able to provide military assistance. People said, hey, wait a second, we don't want to do that, but you had a bipartisan effort to go forward, talk to members and say, let's get it fully funded, and they did. So I think what you're going to see right now from the business community and others, as we look to this January budget, is a bipartisan effort saying, we've got to have this budget passed in January, and the budget that does pass in January has to cover us through September 30th. Carl Tubin. I think, that, <clears throat> I think it's uh, a fact came out that Patty Murray has been talking to Paul Ryan prior to the breakfast meeting. So, and, and evidently, the breakfast meeting went very well. And uh, I think that there's a good chance that something is going to be pulled off here uh, in a positive way. If not, <clears throat> and if, if we're forced back into a squabble and another shutdown, it'll be a disaster. But, or Alan Moore, go yeah. ahead. One other observation about, about Ryan uh, and Murray. They don't have a history of working together, Murray. And it's not that's that's not a judgment; it's an observation, um, because Murray just became the chairman of the budget committee right. when, when Kent Conrad, who'd been the longtime uh, previous uh, chairman, retired. Ryan came into uh, into public view as uh, as the vice presidential candidate. He's clearly a, a numbers one. So the two of them are getting to know each other. But neither one is a is a is a is a strident uh, idealist. They both understand the need to get along, and they both understand the facts. One thing about this this continuing resolution, and Denise made a, the the comment about the the uh, the maritime provisions. <laughs> what are the differences between the Senate and the House? If the House had succeeded in coming together to put a bill together, it probably would have been five or six pages long. It would have been quite short, extend the CR, and then do something on Obamacare. The bill that passed the Senate has 157 titles right. to it. So look at like the, the half a dozen or 10 or 12 you need to change dates and kick things down the road, and then added a, a, a number of other things, some of which might be referred to as earmarks, although not in the, not in the old school kind of way. Well, the, but Senate version, the, Senate version included, the Senate version included a provision to give the widow of, of, of passed away Senator Frank Lautenberg, who, by the way, had a ton of money to begin with, $196,000 in death benefits. There is a long history of giving widows or widowers a year's salary, and that's all this was doing. This wasn't breaking new ground. It was, it was implementing a policy that has been in place for many, many but, years. But it doesn't look fabulous. Well, that's the point, but, though. Well, it's not the only point. The fact is it wasn't something unusual that no one had, had, had ever done before. It was a matter of continuing a policy and a practice 
that has been in place for but, generations. But Congressman Carney, when, when we look at, you know, $196,000 to the obviously wealthy widow of Senator Frank Lautenberg, the American people out in the, the middle part of the country look at that and go, well, wait a minute. We didn't sign up for this. You're just supposed to get this government funded. Where the hell is this coming from? As well as dam improvement divisions in exactly. Wyoming. The, the American people are looking at this going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, you, you're right. you said it exactly. You know, O'Connell got the, the dam and lock project in, in Kentucky, right? Kentucky, I'm sorry, Kentucky, yeah. correct. So that, it's, it's the old game played by slightly different rules, but you always add in the things that you, the sweeteners that will make you come to the table. But Bob Hines, you know, going back to Alan's point, when we look at the budget that possibly could have come out of the House, it would have been short, sweet, it just would have dealt with getting government back open and funding it through the next 90 days. And just at a point where there might be light at the end of the tunnel for the Senate and that they're actually governing, they come up with this. Is, is this a sign that it's still the old way of doing business in the Senate and that the House is just going to have to get its act together? You know, there are, in both houses, there are customs. There are things that uh, maybe the citizens might say, gee, why do they do that? Uh, it's almost always with respect to members. This is an example of that. I don't find it totally offensive. I understand it seems foolish. Here's a, here's a multimillionaire who doesn't, whose widow doesn't need the money at all. It might be different if you're a senator who is, uh, who is just uh, an average guy and he's never made more money than his, than he has no more money than his salary in the Senate. But that's not the way it works. This, this, is, this is something the Senate wants to do. I'm not going to worry about that. If that's the problem, if something like that is a hang-up, then we got more problems than I can ever imagine. Alan Moore. Yeah. As always, these things, when you, when you shine a light on them, they, they, sometimes they're dirtier than they appear, and sometimes they're a lot more benign. The timing may be odd. In the Senate, they self-insure loss of life. They don't put a means test on it. When, the, when a member dies, they give them a year's salary. That A lot of employers give life insurance to employees based on salary. That's what they've done, but they have to appropriate the funds. Now, right. having said that, timing is unfortunate. With regard to the McConnell lock in, in, in the, on the Ohio River, in, in Kentucky, What's important to understand there is almost immediately after this became public, the Democratic chair of the relevant subcommittee of appropriations, Diane Feinstein of California, leaped forward and said, we are fully supportive of this. We put this in. It saves us money because this project is underway and it would have it would have lacked authorization and had to come to a dead stop in November had we not done this. That's why we did it. Carl Tubin. Same thing with uh, with a project in uh, in Chicago, and there's a couple other bridge projects where the the uh, uh, Corps of Engineers were working on these things, and had they not put the money in, again, in November would have been dropped in. Wouldn't have happened. Which one? Congressman now. One of the things that's always difficult for a member of Congress to explain are, are things that are, are, are a little uh, traditional and the clear rationale for them has been lost in the public's mind way back in the mist somewhere. 
And we get a lot of those. I'm, I'm still answering email explaining that no members of Congress, when they retire, do not get their full salary for life. Right. <clears throat> uh, and, and I remember once I was out in the district and some young man came up to me and he says, so you're a congressman? And I said, yes, I am. He says, well, if you're a congressman, where's your limousine and the blonde? <laughs> Obviously, he's been hanging outside of Shelley's at seven o'clock. And, and then you probably asked, "Did I did I lose out? Did I not get my chair?" So I have that same yeah. question. <laughs> you had the blonde. Yeah. Well, the, the reality here, though, is, and Bob Hines, I want to go to you. Is you know, at a point where American frustration is an all-time low with Congress, you're talking about an 11 percent approval rating on the job that Congress is doing. Poll just came out the other day. 51% uh, of Americans think that Republicans are the worst things since sliced bread as far as governing this nation right now. At a time where perception is reality, is the perception of the Senate bill and which it got passed with all the provisions in it, is this just lack of understanding or is this just trying to keep the old school way of doing business alive in Washington, D.C.? I think they were trying to keep the country alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. Fact check, fact check. What? Fact check. Okay. It's not 11% approval. It's 12% approval. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It came, well, it depends. By the way, there's a plus or minus 3% margin of error on these polls. So, 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 so it's 99% for all we know. So, but, but again, Bob Hines, perception's reality. This doesn't send a, a, a very a happy message out to the general electorate. No, it doesn't. And, and why would it? To look, at, look, at, look at what's been going on for the last two months. Two months? Yeah. You know, for the last no, two years. No, I'm talking about the last two months. We're talking about right now what this, oh, okay. how, this poll, okay. how this poll is, what this poll is reacting to. For almost two months, the House of Representatives being pushed by a, a, a very vigorous, young, bright senator decided to, he was trying, they were going to defund the Obamacare bill. Now, that's insane. There's, number one, the Senate wouldn't let it happen. Number two, the president would veto any bill that was going to kill his one legacy legislative success. Now, thinking about that, why do you think anybody in their right mind would keep doing it? Well, I can't figure it out, and I'm a Republican, but a lot of, a lot of Republicans went that road. And all it did, as time went on, made it more and more difficult for anything else to surface that would make any sense in the way of a deal. It creates a perception in the general public. Now, frankly, the general public is not detail-rich in their understanding of this. So it is, it is perception. But it creates the perception of increased intransigence in Washington. It used to be a place, this town used to be a place where problems were solved, but not created. Right. Now it's perceived exactly the other way around. Right. Denise Krupp. Well, are we solving problems or are we creating problems? I mean, I, I think the person that's going to come out the worst on this, quite frankly, is Mitch McConnell. I mean, if you took a look at some of the interesting articles in the Washington Post, it was the folks in Kentucky saying he shouldn't have done what he did. But the only reason, folks, that we actually have a budget right now is because Mitch McConnell made the decision to work with the Democrats on the other side. Right. And but for him, we would 
still be out of work right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm no Congressman fan. Of, I'm no fan of Mitch McConnell, but he did the right thing and he did it for the right reasons, and he knew damn well that he was in trouble at home when he did it, which showed that he also had courage. But we we, we spent half a second. But is he paying attention to a primary challenge or a general election challenge? I'd say both. Well, I I, I, I think we're I, getting rumors. We're getting rumors that there's going to be both. On both sides. Well, well he's McConnell getting, and Reed are facing some stiff sure. competition, possibly. But I, I think McConnell's made the decision or the calculation that he can get, he can survive the primary challenge, but he may have a tougher time in the general. Which is possibly, possibly. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, uh, I am a huge fan of Mitch McConnell. I have enormous respect for the guy, um, and he, a year ago, was the guy who cut the deal with uh, Biden. This time he cut the deal with Reed. He stays on the side. He watches things develop and then jumps in uh, when he needs to. He's trying to be careful and protect himself, as all these guys do, uh, in terms of uh, the election elections uh, that he may be facing, a primary and a general. Uh, and he, there's no guarantees in this game, uh, as, as, our, as, two, as two of our guys know, and some of the rest of us who yeah. work for politicians who have lost um, and we were lost right along with him, um, uh, or who won and we won along with him. But I think that McConnell also takes very seriously his job as the leader. He sought that job. He got that job. He, I think, is a remarkably effective leader. And it ain't no easy job leading uh, a, a caucus <laughs> that includes that is fractioned Ted Cruz. Uh, over here, and uh, John McCain over here, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, I don't mean to put, put McCain as the best example of, uh, uh, of, of the softer side of the party, but it's a, it, it is a, it is a tough, tough job, and it's one he does extremely well, and cares a lot about, and jumps in when he has we, to. We, we spent half this segment, or more than half this segment, talking about, you know, what happened. I, I think what we realize is, all right, we've reopened government for another 90 days. The question that America is asking itself right now is, okay, are we going to go through this same level of BS in 60 days leading up to the 90-day deadline? Bob Hines, is this something that we can expect? Or, God forbid, Congress has learned its lesson. No, God not forbid. <laughs> no, that was sarcasm, Al. Oh, I see. Yeah, I know you were up in Canada, and they don't have a lot of that up there, but that was American sarcasm. Hey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bob Hines. Let us hope that the last several months and the great frustrations that everybody has on both sides of all the issues, let us hope that they, at that point, have learned enough to say, we've got to cut some deals. We just have to do it. I mean, now, do I think it's 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 almost a sure thing that's going to happen? No, I don't. I wouldn't bet the mortgage on it. I'll tell you that. I wouldn't bet my house on it, but I would be willing to make a bet that there are going to be enough middle of the roaders. I wouldn't call them moderates. Let me let me call them people who have a good judgment and recognize that the idea of it's my way or the highway ain't going to work at all. Are you saying that there could be an emergence of a practical caucus? Yes. Interesting, <laughs> Congressman Carney. I, Pragmatism on the hill, um, but something's gone wrong. You know, I wonder now. We talk about all this and, and how little deals were made on the side. Ever since we got rid of earmarking, there hasn't been a necessity to actually talk to the other side necessarily to to make deals, right? I wonder if bringing back earmarks would would make 
the, the hill a little more civil. I wouldn't have a problem with that. <laughs> I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. Uh, but, again, looking into the crystal ball, because we've done such a good job of handicapping politics on this show, uh, looking into the crystal ball, Congressman Al, should America be nervous that we're going to see another shutdown in 90 days, a la the 79 shutdowns and even the 96 shutdowns? Well, I think they should be nervous. I, I don't know that that will happen. <clears throat> but uh, if you base it on how Congress has behaved up to now, you can't say that, well, that will never happen. That will not happen. Uh, let, let me add another thing. It seems to me that, that, that another reform that is necessary that will never happen is there is no need for a vote on the debt ceiling. You have to do it. You have to do it. It's paying the credit card bill. And why we put ourselves through this agony, it's, it's again something the public doesn't understand and, uh, and all of that, and we should just do away with that. So well, we we're going to talk about that specific subject when we get on to the President's soft messaging uh, here in the, in the uh, second hour, but I, also looking at, well, Denise, you had a comment real quick. I, I, I part of your answer is tied to when are the primaries in the caucuses. I mean, because if you're looking at a January 15th deadline, what is the first primary and what's the first caucus that occurs? And what are those folks who are going to be up in front of those primaries and caucuses thinking about? Well, we still have elections that we got to get with this November that are going to, are going to determine some right. key, if you will, forecasting of what midterms could so look like. see what Virginia looks like come November, but I really yeah. do think you're going to see what late, you know, late January, early February, that's going to be the indicators. Alan Moore. Back to your initial question of whether the American people should worry about what's going to happen in January. Yeah, we always got to worry. We got Congress involved uh, and, and this particular president. So you shouldn't all of a sudden get all comfortable. But, but I think that, that we're at the moment at the bottoming out in terms of Congress. Um, we keep saying that, and then they go lower. I think yeah, next still twelve more points. I think, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think next week um, that you're going to see that that the problems with Obamacare, which I know we're going to talk about, are going to suddenly emerge much larger. And all these people who said, watch out for Obamacare, watch out for Obamacare, are going to have at least a little bit of credibility until this stuff gets, gets sorted out. So that's one thing that will happen. But the second reason I don't see us having another stoppage is uh, encapsulated in the, in the remark that, that uh, Mitch McConnell made about how you never learn much from the second kick of a mule. Well, we've had two. We won't do that again. Not in, at least for another 10, 15 years when we... But, but Alan, uh, Alan with, all due, with all due respect, this Congress, is, this Congress has been kicked in the head by several mules several times, and they still can't seem to get out of their this way. This was the first shutdown, and I'm saying that there will not be another shutdown. That doesn't mean we won't kick the can down the road again, because we had that conversation last week. There's always a road, no matter how beat up the can is, you can always kick it farther down the road. I think there will not be another shutdown. Bob Hines. Slim down. Right. Uh, Depending on who you talk to. Bob Hines. We talked about practicality. The, The popularity polls of the Congress, and particularly the Republican Party, have fallen so rapidly, so quickly, in such a great degree, that I think even the Tea Party people must begin to think a little bit, say, well, I've got my base, you know, but I'm not sure how big it is anymore. 
I'm not sure everybody who votes Tea Party is as rabid as some of them, and I've got to be a little more careful now, I think. Bob, hold that thought, because we're going to take that up in the second segment. I want to talk about who the winners and losers, and I want to talk about the emergence of a new practical middle, uh, not only in Congress, but in the American electorate as a whole. So hold that thought. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, Seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Live at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. And we're continuing the discussion of the fallout of the continuing resolution, the debt ceiling increase, and basically 90 days of just more tension for the American public. Uh, Obviously, there were winners and losers. Uh, Right now, polls are showing the big losing party in this 
is the GOP. Uh, 51% of Americans, according to Politico, let me bring that up here real quick. According to a Politico story, uh, they are saying that... um, I just had it here, and it is gone. Roughly, it's saying that 51% of Americans feel that the GOP is exactly the reason why the government shutdown happened. Uh, there's a lot of blame being thrown around inside the party and out. Uh, but reality, Bob, Republicans didn't do, any, didn't do themselves any favors on this shutdown at all. Uh, there didn't seem to be an end game. There didn't seem to be an out clause. Uh, just bad politicking on the side of some in the GOP, but the some in the GOP were the most vocal in the GOP. That's a problem. Well, the reason the reason that the uh, Republicans never had an endgame was because the Tea Party never got off the Obamacare kick. No matter what they, no matter what you tried to do, that's what they wanted to do. And the idea of of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and th- expecting a different result. So after three or four times in the House, you know, the, the House, you know, Bader just do the, the golf said, I can't do anything about it. The Senate had to take the, take the uh, do the work. I think it was the, more than three, two or three times. It's 46 or 47 times. Well, right? yeah, it was a whole bunch. They, well, they, they got that many bills out of the House. Right. And it was, you know, the reality is that there is a very determined dynamic group in the House and in the Senate, but mostly in the House, that is absolutely, totally committed. I mean, I think if they would defund Obamacare, they'd all retire and say, I'm successful, I don't want to do anything else. I mean, because that's all they care about. And that makes no blanking sense at all when we're trying to get something done. But Congressman Al, our friend Sal Copen over at Politico uh, wrote an article about a USA Today, Princeton, uh, poll that came out where it says 47% of Americans that were surveyed uh, believe every member should be replaced in Congress. That is even worse than after the 94 shutdown, or after the 94 Congress rather, where 40% of Americans said that all members of Congress should be thrown out. Uh, is that is that a mandate from the American electorate? No, that's that's again a misunderstanding from the American electorate, though I will admit that there was a point at which I was saying throw all the SOBs out. It was so frustrating what was going on, but I've always thought that that is a very bad approach. First of all, find out how your congressman voted, and if he voted a way you didn't like, throw him or her out. But don't throw out people who agreed with you, and if you haven't checked the vote, you don't know. So it's a it's a piece of cheap, wrong-headed advice that pops up every time Congress gets a PR problem. Carl Tubin. There was also another poll, uh, which they've taken over and over again over the years, and which said that 52% of the uh, of people polled want the Democrats back in charge, <clears throat> and uh, we haven't been up there in about four years that high. And, you know, I think that the Tea Party people are, even though they're in gerrymandered districts, I think the Tea Party people are also going to take a hit. Uh, I was, I was, there was reports that they were getting calls during this uh, two-week period 
to stop this stuff. Well, Carl, I haven't seen the poll that you're talking about, but I'll, I'll tell you right now, the, the polls that we're seeing out of, out of Washington Post, out of Zogby, uh, out of Princeton, Wall Street Journal, NBC, uh, showing that the American people believe that 39% of Americans are blaming both parties. And of that 39%, 30% strongly feel that, I mean, there's no question, they're absolutely pointing the fingers at both parties. Both so both parties have got stuff to lose in all this. Both parties are to blame. I, I, will, I will say that. <clears throat> um, there probably could have been more negotiations on the Hill, but they, they weren't. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 Nancy and Boehner uh, don't, don't talk very much. Um, and it, you know, it came to everybody kind of went away, and that's why McConnell had such came through and, and put the deal together. Chris Carney, then Denise. <clears throat> well, this begs the question: Does the, the losing streak continue? If you know, we saw how Ted Cruz was received in Texas. Yeah, the encouragement was to continue the fight, not to let it go. Continue to work to defund Obamacare, and will that resonate? You know, he's gone to Iowa again for the third time since he's been in the Senate. Right. You know, we we know what his objective is ultimately, but will that continue to keep the Tea Party ignited? And if so, what will be the impact? Will it continue? Denise Krepp. Well, and along that line, I mean, we have a full year before the congressional election, and we have Ted Cruz blaming the Republicans in the Senate. So if you're blaming them, why should they work with you? And if they're not working with you, how are we getting anything out of the Senate? Because the only way we get bills passed is if the Senate and the House both work together. Correct. Bob Hines? Uh, what, Ten days ago, uh, when the Republicans in the Senate were having, a, having their Thursday breakfast, all of them were there, and Cruz was there, and they lit into him. I don't think there was anybody in the room who said anything nice about him, and most of them were, were taking him to the woodshed. Yeah, but, but and you know the, that may not mean a great deal, you know, out in Texas, and it might not mean a whole lot in the Iowa primary. But CNN's but right now reporting that Ted Cruz got an eight-minute standing ovation at an appearance in San Antonio. There's obviously a misinformed electorate base that he is populizing himself too. I'm always amused when we, when we talk about how people are misinformed for doing what they believe and what they want to do. Um, what, I was going to make the observation that the, that the person that, that Republican senators now are really, really furious with is former Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, who <laughs> retired created <laughs> an opportunity for this man, Cruz. Now, but, you know, Cruz is doing what he said he was going to do, and he yeah. enjoys, among Republicans in Texas, 75% approval. So, you know, I don't, I don't agree with him. I don't like it. I don't think it's healthy, but I, but I don't hold it against him. And, my God, he's a senator who has this odd and unusual impact over on the House what the hell is the, it's not so much that something's wrong with Cruz, what's the matter with the House? And then you look at those guys, we've talked about this before, they got elected because they also want to blow things up, because they represent a constituency that elected them that is furious at what's happened in this country over the last six years. Chris Carney. Well, Al, I, I agree. Uh, the, the question is, 
will they be successful in blowing it up? And then what does that mean? You know, when, when you go to Texas and, and get an eight-minute standing O for um, shutting down, you know, working to shut down the government, that gives you credibility with the electorate, which is gives everybody pause looking at the next elections, the next election cycles. You know, so does that become how politics is done in America? Carl Tubin? Uh, in Texas, the Houston, uh, Houston Post, and one Houston other, Chronicle. Chronicle and one other large paper um, took back their endorsement of, uh, of Cruz. Too late. And said, and said, <laughs> and said, Thank you, basically, as you said, as, as Alan says, they wish K. Bailey Hutchinson was in the. You know, uh, K. Bailey Hutchinson was, was on uh, uh, the. Daily Roundup on MSNBC. For those of you who don't know what the Daily Roundup, it's required watching in Washington political circles. Uh, Kay Billy Hutchinson was out, and they asked her, you know, look, a lot of people are looking at you saying you left too early. Why so soon? Uh, and, and just to kind of generalize what she was saying is, do you think I want to stick around for this? <laughs> which, which, by the way, you can't blame her. Politico's reporting today that John McCain is even second-guessing a run in 2016 for his Senate seat, well, which is remarkable. That's a lot of years out. And he's, it, he's getting old. He, so, he is. He know. is. But still, he's still part of that old-school conglomerate that we need desperately in the Senate without having people like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz run around ramshot. Chris Carvey, you know... It, it's funny, when I'm back in the district, I don't know how many former constituents, I bet you're so glad you're not there now, huh? You know, and, 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 yeah. and what's your and, answer? And hell yes, I'm glad I'm not there now. <laughs> kind of. But, but it, it, it takes guys of, of moderate belief on both sides. You know, that's not the right way. People are willing to make deals. People who are willing to work across the aisle to get things done. We haven't had that for the last few years. But there, but there are still glimmers of hope out there. I mean, we were talking, you were talking earlier of, about the practical caucus. I mean, we see people like Corker, Manchin. Uh, we see people like uh, McCain, uh, Patty Murray, Susan Collins. We, there are glimmers of moderation on, on even both sides. Paul Ryan, as conservative as he is, is not a demagogue. Even though the Tea Party loves him, he doesn't embrace the Tea Party himself. So where does the pocket of moderation come up, Bob Hines? Moderation is the wrong word. We're not going to get a bunch of moderates in Congress. You Why don't, not? You don't need them if you... I don't care how strong your, your policy views are. If you're willing to negotiate to get a solution... Listen, when, when, when Al was, on, was, was a member of the Congress and when, and when I was working on the Hill... Listen, Tip O'Neill and Jerry Ford were not exactly the greatest of friends on the floor of the House, but they cut deals consistently yeah. over a, the period of, of Gerald, Jerry's leadership on all kinds of legislation. The Democrats got most of what they wanted, but the Republicans got enough. Solutions were found, and those two people who, who disagreed constantly on the floor, on policy, were happy, were happy to work together to make solutions got legislation done. Congressman Al, you had a comment. Uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, go back to the train. <laughs> On this question of whether you need moderates or moderation, um, 
I'm reminded of Ted Kennedy, who most people think was one of the most effective senators um, in the history of the Senate, certainly the modern history of the Senate. He was a very liberal guy. He was all for expansive government. He wanted a single-payer health insurance And look who his plan. best friend was, but, Orrin Hatch. Well, he and Hatch were, were good friends, but the point I'm making is that what Kennedy did constantly through the years was work with conservative Republicans, whether the issue was, was immigration, health care, you, you, uh, judiciary issues where he worked with Hatch. You can find all sorts of examples. Kennedy would stake out a position over here. He could demagogue like the best of them. Um, but when it came time to make a deal, he would find the common ground, even if it was a sliver. He'd ask for a full loaf, and he'd get one slice, and he'd say, I'll take it. See you next time. Con and he would come back again and again and again. Congressman Al. Uh, we, Bob and I in particular have said this over and over in this program, so forgive the redundancy, but I don't think you're going to really get back to a more common sense Congress until we redo redistricting. Right. Uh, exactly. And <laughs> as, as long as you've got uh, <coughs> congressional districts gerrymandered so that one party or the other is always going to keep it, you're not going to be able to get any room for people to compromise. But now, here's the problem I have with that statement. Districts don't make the deals. The people that they elect make the deals. Instead of saying that redistricting is going to be the savior, there's nothing saying that we can't see a practical Congress come back. I mean, even going as recently as Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton, We've seen where the people make the deals, not the district. As long as you've got to be worrying, worrying about your primary, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. 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 And that's exactly it. If you are worrying about your primary, you're more worried about that district. So the districts make the deals, not the people in them, the district. Carl Tubin. One, one, one thing we've overlooked about this past situation in the last two weeks, it was the women in the Senate who had gotten together and started to talk, and they've been talking for a while. And and they helped put this thing together. Senator Collins. Uh, uh, Kelly Ayotte out of New Hampshire. New Hampshire Patty Murray out of Washington. Right. Uh, right. Even, even, I can't believe I'm going to say this, Diane Feinstein, Feinstein right. was actually involved in some of right. that. And I can't believe in a lifetime I would ever say this, i got to give Senator Feinstein right. credit right. For, sh for showing some sort of practical sense in working the problem. The other thing that I heard on Meet the Press, which I found very interesting, matter of fact, I almost dropped off my, my chair, was when Senator Nelson said that he had... Which had, Nelson? Uh, Bill, Florida, Bill Florida, Nelson. ...said that he had had lunch with Senator Cruz, and they wondering, what was that all about? He said, I'm trying to reach across the aisle, and I'm trying to establish a relationship. You know, to, to my friend, to my good friend, Senator Bill Nelson, my only <laughs> advice is good luck with that. Tell me how that works out for you. I picked up the check. Yeah, yeah, I, I can tell you who picked up the check. It was Bill Nelson. Uh, the reality is we, we, we have always said on this show that there's got to be more civility, more practical thinking, more moderates coming out. You know, when we look at them, why can't we get more Joe Manchin's why can't we get more corkers? Why can't we get more Collins? Why can't we see the the one moderate in the GOP that's got the spotlight now is Chris Christie. 
I mean, this is a guy in a democratic state, and he's got an 86%. The, short of the guy having photos with him in weird foreign animal positions, he's going to get elected in a blue democratic state. Why can't we find more Christie's, Collins, and Corkers? Well, the people you're talking about are in the Senate. Right. The problem Al is talking about is gerrymandered districts in the House. Now, they're not all gerrymandered. In fact, California just turned the whole process over to a, a state commission. and it and, After and being a right, master of gerrymandering. After Phil Burton. By both parties. Right. right. Phil Burton right. and then the Republicans. Right. 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 But, but, but Phil Burton, way back when, was all the it. early master yeah, that taught everybody how to do this. He's you know, now deceased. Right. What, he was a a brilliant guy who knew precinct to precinct where, where the votes were and how to draw uh, clever districts. But, and he's but Ed, he kept all of that. Yeah, but, but Al, Al is, is completely right that we, we've created now a system which, which dominates around the country. It's not everywhere, but it, where you, you, you and, and our congressman here has some experience with that up in Pennsylvania, um, that, that, uh, that you're that the person you worry most about is the person who will flank you in your own party. Once you're the nominee, it's pretty smooth sailing, and that is a huge problem that feeds this because it forces the Democrats who get elected in competitive districts farther to the left and Republicans, we've seen, farther to the right. And it creates this fear and concern, and, uh, and, and I, I think we all agree that the House is the bigger part of this particular problem. Denise Crown. Right. Well, first of all, it's expensive, as you know, as you both know. So right. you, you've got to do the expense. And by the way, when, when I'm talking about expenses, folks, that's in addition to your living expenses and the fact that you might have children, you might have a mortgage, and you might want to send your children to college. So that's the expense, first off. Then when you run for Congress, you have to go through a pretty thorough, invasive, more than invasive, background so that everybody knows what's happened to your life. So do you feel comfortable having everybody know every single fact that's occurred in your life? And not only do you have that, and I, and I bring that up, Justin, because sometimes people don't want that to happen because sometimes we may, you know, may have made a mistake, and that mistake gets magnified. And then the last part of this is when you do run for Congress, you sometimes have to be told that you have to withdraw from certain organizations, or you have to put your money in trust, or you have to get rid of certain stock. And by the way, folks, you get paid okay in Congress, but it's after Congress you've got to be a little concerned about. And so how do you set yourself up to make sure that if you do decide to represent your folks from that district, that you can do this in a way that you're going to come out on the other side reasonably well and not in poverty? Yeah, but Denise, I mean, we've got two members of Congress here, both of them not rich by any stroke of the imagination. I mean, hell, Al still works. Chris, you're actively working to have to just, you know, continue your lifestyle and support your family. I agree with you, but make no mistake about it is, and I want to put this to, to both of the, the former members, running for Congress, whether it's Senate, whether it's uh, in the House, and in any elected office, it's a public service. You're basically volunteering. Instead of volunteering for an all-volunteer military, you're volunteering for an all-volunteer legislative body, whether it's city council, county commission, or U.S. House or Senate. The reality still dictates is when you make that decision, somebody's got to make the decision to say, look, I'm going up there not to just represent my constituency, but I'm part of the bigger cog that runs this entire country's fiscal and budgetary and security 
and social affairs. And Jensen, it's easier to do that when you're in the Senate than vice in the House. So I'd ask the two members. Well, uh, Chris, I'll go to you. Well, part of it is, you know, about a third of the time, you have to fundraise in order to stay there. The, the, the interesting thing is most folks don't understand, it doesn't matter how articulate you might be, what your policies are, how well you legislate, you will draw a challenger if your bank account's low enough. Mm-hmm. That's, that's part of the problem, actually. So do we go to like a British model and saying, look, a centralized elections commission, you get $100,000, everybody's equal playing field, let you guys fight it out amongst Supreme, yourselves? Supreme Court won't let you do that. Oh, okay, well, so then what's the solution? If, if think, money is buying, and that allows people like the Koch brothers, and it allows the Hollywood political consortium to come together and throw all money all day long at it. Congressman Al, what's the solution? I have talked, first of all, you've got to educate the electorate, if you will. Good luck. Exactly. But here's, here's the way I have tried to do it. When people start saying, you've got all those rich people that are putting it, you've got all the corporations, you've got all the unions that are doing it, and, uh, and I said, look, there are only three ways you get money into a campaign. There aren't four, there aren't five, there aren't six. There are three. One is you pay for it yourself, which means you have Congress made up of very rich people. The second way is you have public financing, which nobody likes. Incumbents don't like it, challengers don't like it, and the public doesn't like it. So that seems to be not likely. The third one is you take money from people who inevitably will have a special interest. And you take that and make it as transparent as you possibly can so that it can be debated along with everything else in the campaign. Those are your choices. When you, people you, don't like any one of them. Congressman, you left out one choice, and, I, and, I, and I've seen it happen. I, I did this in Oklahoma. The still, there is still a grassroots capability that everybody is afraid to put into motion. The actual knocking on the doors and asking for the $10, the $25, $100. This does not have to be a big money by the office type situation. Chris, am I wrong? Um, to, a, to a degree, if you have a district like mine that was larger than Connecticut, it's hard to knock on those doors. But you do have to chain yourself to a desk and do your calls. Right. Do call time. You do have to do that. Absolutely. But, but the, the money is the corrupting aspect of this, of this whole process. I mean, look, look at the stories now that the Republicans uh, who were the big donors now are not making the contributions to the people that expect them to to be donees because of, of their behavior. So will that, in fact, affect their behavior? But, but I want to go back to something that Bob had mentioned a few weeks ago about the race possibly in, in Justin Amosh's district out in uh, Michigan. Grand Rapids. Up in Grand Rapids. People like Rich DeVos and other big-time money corporate bigwigs in that district are coming together to find, wait a minute, we don't like what Justin Amosh is doing for big business. We're going to find our own guy. And, oh, by the way, we're going to flood, the, we're going to flood it with money, and he's going to win. And, Justin, you go back doing whatever it was you were doing before. So, again, big business comes in. This is a matter of who can raise the most money, not who's the best candidate. Well, and, and big labor. Uh, yeah, we're putting out business. 
it's both sides. It's, it's labor. Both, both sides. It's the entertainment. It's it's the big money donors and corporate Wall Street, the whole nine yards. But but there's a sea change now. I mean, I don't know how many emails a day I receive from different organizations asking for two or three or four or five dollars every day, you know, hourly almost. And sometimes you give, sometimes you don't. But the impact of that is enormous. I mean, it really is. And it's interesting. But is that not a grassroots level? It's on a grassroots level, which I think is probably a bit healthier because you may not be able to give a million dollars from your business, but you still feel you have some buy-in if you give 10 bucks or 25 bucks. And, and that's, that's important. So one thing you look at is how many discrete individual donors you, were, you have, even at whatever level, it doesn't have to be the million dollar donation, which it can't be obviously, but if it's the 10 and the $5 donation, those people are doing what they can on your behalf. And, and it, it's sort of a barometer on, on the support that you're trying to get, gain from the constituents. But Bob Hines, it, it, it almost seems like to me that some of the best people that could have an SEC filing that would look like the old New York City white pages would be more apt to giving those individual donors are literally putting ten dollars, twenty-five, minimum hundred dollars, and they feel like they've got skin in the game. It almost makes it like they're investing in how they're going to and be. May I quote you? Yes. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> There's one thing sure: somebody writes a check for twenty-five dollars. The chances are very, very good that they're going to vote for it. Right. That's the bottom line. Alan Moore. Yeah, and I was reflecting on how uh, Obama and his people, to their great credit, uh, were were uh, early adopters and 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 uh, early formers of this. Uh, grassroots via the internet enterprise and they raised millions of dollars via small donations um, everybody's now trying to do it and Chris is getting his uh, hourly uh, message so I think that that although that that notion isn't dead it's going to be really hard to revive except and unless you have a message and a moment that people will respond to. But what used to be unusual is now becoming the norm, which makes it that much harder to stand out in that, in that grassroots space. Congressman, I'm going to give you the last word on this. <clears throat> we shouldn't talk about campaign finance without giving a nod to the Supreme Court, which has taken us back to the Nixon years. It has wiped out everything that was done as a re real reform. Uh, and so we're in for some real problems, uh, yeah. and, and much worse than we've ever had before. Uh, I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the things that got small contributions involved was the PAC, and which, which Fred Wertheimer and, uh, and, and uh, Ralph. Ralph Goody Two Shoes <coughs> both you're talking about Ralph Nader? Yes. <laughs> Both of them found that because you could trace the money so easily, they could use it to beat up on you. And I remember Fred Wertheimer was in my office once, and I said, well, I see you've just issued you know, your third report with the same figures and moved them around, and that I have taken more money from communications packs than anybody else in the Congress. 
And uh, I said, you know, that's no doubt true. I never questioned common causes dollars, you know, their figures. Uh, <clears throat> I said, but Fred, you know that most of the people in communications, if they're not natural enemies, they sure as hell ain't natural friends. If you take from broadcasters, you, you're going to upset other people. If you take from cable, you're going to upset other people. If you take from this telephone company, you're going to upset that <laughs> telephone company. So that, yeah, I take from all of them, and every time I vote, I'm voting against most of them. And Fred looked at me and he said, yes, but the public doesn't know that. Al, Al would take their dough and then tell them no. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, that's me, all right. We're, we're, we're up against the top of the hour. We're up against the top of the hour. By the way, kids, it's happy hour out there in Radio Land. Uh, we're going to break open our, our bottles of booze and smoke our cigars here at Shelly's Back Room. But before we go to break, one big winner, one big loser in the fallout of the fiscal fight. Congressman Al, one big winner, one big loser. One big in the fiscal fight. Who was the big winner? Who was the big loser? The Democrats were the big winners. Okay. The big loser, obviously, was the Republicans. Bob Hines? The biggest loser was the uh, organizational structure of the Republican Party, the leadership, uh, with Mr. Cruz undermining almost everything you can imagine. Well, then let me let me add something. I I, I think this is sad. I, I think that... You know, we got to go to break at some point now. Big, big loser was John Boehner, and that wasn't fair to him. He's a good man. He's, you know, I don't agree with him on anything, but he's... He... he passed by compromise the education bill for President Bush with Ted Kennedy. And I thought, yeah. this is a man who can, be, can, can do the job, but he's got his feet nailed to the floor by the Tea Party. Alan Moore? So the biggest winner was President Obama, who sort of got what he wanted without working very hard. And the biggest loser is also President Obama, because now the focus is on Obamacare, which is a disaster. And we're going to take it up in the next hour. Uh, Congressman Chris. The, the biggest winner, I think, uh, is, is President Obama and the Democratic Party. I mean, just, just anything with a, with a donkey on it is, is going to do fairly well in the near future. The biggest loser is the American public, because it further erodes any confidence, any faith they have in this country's ability to govern. Carl Tubin. The biggest loser was the biggest loser is the Tea Party, which has dragged down the Republican Party. Here they want to rebrand themselves, and they have all this stuff going on, which absolutely wipes out what they're doing. The, the, the winner is the Democrats. I'm not going to say how much or, or if it's going to last, because there's a year before the next election. Days crap. No one won and we all lost. All right, there we go. Uh, we also would have accepted uh, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, big losers. <laughs> we also would have accepted Washington. Uh, Washington was also a big loser. So we're going to go to break. It's happy hour, folks. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. <laughs> Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us 
We'll be back in two minutes. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the second hour of Backroom Politics, as it is every Tuesday. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion. Actually, we're going to change trials a little bit here. The, uh, just when you thought that President Obama had gotten to the top of the mountain, succeeded, big winner in town, and now he's getting uh, bunkered in, hunkered down, and getting ready for another big fight on two aspects. Let's talk about the big 300-pound gorilla in the room, and I'm not talking about me. Uh, we're talking about the 300-pound gorilla that is Obamacare. Now that the fiscal can has been kicked, they're not going to use Obamacare as the proverbial punching. Uh, in case you haven't seen it, here's what's going on. Uh, Obamacare, in case you know, was instituted here in the uh, past month, and the website, healthcare.gov, has been, how do we say the blog talk radio uh, Skype servers are more reliable than healthcare.gov, and that is saying something. Uh, the, there is uh, several, several fingers being pointed at, but on top of the fact, new poll is coming out from NBC Wall Street Journal showing 12% of Americans believe the rollout of Obamacare is quote-unquote successful. That means that uh, 88% of the American public poll feels that Obamacare rollout was a disaster. Oh, wait oh, a minute. Come on. Come on. All right, all right. Let me rephrase. So 12% yeah. of the population got on and got enrolled. So that's yeah, what it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 the, and the other 88% feel, no. the eight, feel it was not successful. Well, I'll yeah. leave it The up. other 88% either 
thought it was not successful or don't know. Right? Give me a break. And how many people are we polling? I'm not the oh. pollster. Go ask Winston <laughs> Churchill. Good, Good Lord. Good Lord, Lord people. The, the reality, you know what's amazing? I love polls. Because every time you bring up a poll, look, I get it. You can make numbers dance and sing any story you want it to. But the, the people that hate the polls are the people that don't like the numbers. You could have made your point, which I think is a valid point, <laughs> if you hadn't been extreme in how you stated it. Correct. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just reading between He's the colorful. lines. Colorful. Yes. It's Alan. good radio, Al. I'm, I'm trying to go. Oh, stop! I'm without. Oh, ask Alan for the oh, facts. Yeah, now you want us to be BBC for crying out loud? I, I want to know who the 12 percent are. Who, I think it's going to success. That's a big question. Who are they? Who are, what are they watching? But let's, let's talk. They're, about, they're, let's, they're the people that still use Commodore 64. Exactly. <laughs> but here, here's the big thing: is the one person in the administration that has taken the biggest brunt of this grenade is Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. Congressman Al, is, is she unfairly taking the brunt of this, or is she responsible for a horrible rollout? If you're head of something, you're going to get blamed if it goes wrong. So in that sense, uh, there's nothing unfair about it. I, 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 would, I would love to look inside the president's head and see exactly how angry he is with the people that put this together improperly so that it didn't work. He probably would like to get them alone in a room with his hands around Well, we, we, were, we were talking about this earlier before the show, and if, uh, I'm going to be out there, full disclosure, I worked for one of these integrator companies, I worked for several of these integrator companies at one time, uh, and I know the business of government IT. The reality is a lot of people are pointing fingers at the government, rightfully so. There are other people that are pointing uh, fingers at the IT contractor that the government hired to put this into place. Uh, the reality is, the, all the contractor was doing was doing what the government told them to do. This still goes back on the government. So looking at the government, Bob Hines, where did the government fall down? Well, number one, I don't know exactly where they fell down in place. I suspect that the technical people in the government working with the outside contractors probably had a little bit more than they ought to have of let's do it our way rather than let the technological people do it and, and do it just the way it should be done. I suspect that may be what happened. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is it is, a, it is really a mess to see how many uh, complaints and problems there seem to be around the country. Congressman well, I, I think part of it is that the technology, obviously. They couldn't wet up the technology with the complexity of the healthcare system. I think when, when you look at, at the, the policy it's trying to fix, right. you know, you, you can't make a zeros and ones sing if, if you have a policy as complex as America's healthcare system. And, and to make it as seamless and as easy to get healthcare as you can order a pair of sneakers on, on Amazon, it's going to take some doing. Uh, and I think they grossly underestimated the technology that's going to be required. And in addition to which, people always criticize the government for being slow. It makes its mistakes when it hurts. And I go back to to Lyndon Johnson and uh, the... Well, we ought to be damn near perfect. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, 
poverty program. I mean, he, he forced Sergeant Shriver to put together the Job Corps, for example, way too fast. That's a program that has since worked extremely well, but it, it really got screwed up at the, at the outset. And it was because they didn't take enough time to do it right the first time, and I suspect that's what's happened here. Denise Crap. And just I'm concerned, I think you just gave the uh, IT folks a bot. I, I don't know if most folks realize this, but the majority of the IT systems in the United States government have been outside, outsourced to private companies. And since I had to live through a um, little debacle in the Coast Guard called Deepwater, and that's when we learned that the Coast Guard... But that wasn't IT. That was not IT. That was not IT. We we don't know what it is and don't really care. Exactly. I mean, that's the reality. That's the reality. Carl Tubin. Well, there was a report this morning that a lot of people who were within HHS... saw this coming, but didn't tell the secretary. Right. Now, the secretary should have known, but they didn't tell the secretary. Uh, the other thing is, this is one situation where President Obama, if, if he knew about it in advance, I mean, they had, a, they had a test a week before that didn't go well. He should have said, let's stop this. Let's take a few weeks to try to get the, the uh, kinks out, or take a month or two months and then roll it out instead of having this mess. Alan Moore. Well, a couple of things. One, when Al says this was happens when you hurry, it's like, yeah, they only had four years to get this one right. Um, and what we really needed was even more time. Now, with regard to, to, to Carl's point, I think that in an odd way, they did know just before the launch that some test runs, modest little test runs, ran into snags. Right. But politically, the Republicans had gotten into this corner of saying, just delay the individual mandate. And they were not about to do it, even though there was strong indication that this was a problem. So to protect them politically at the time, they made a real fundamental problem. In terms of the software itself, there were a couple of things that, that occurred. One, a bunch more states came into the federal system than they had originally thought. Well, if that means, and that's why the contract, which was supposed to peak at 100 million, went up to 300 million and still counting. Um, but there was a bigger problem in the, in, a, in the decision on design, and it reflects the way healthcare works in America. We hide the costs of healthcare from people right. through all sorts of subsidies, and everybody thinks they should get healthcare and they shouldn't have to pay for it. And the fact of the matter is somebody has to pay. Now, what that meant for for Obamacare was, rather than tell people in individual states, here here are going to be your four options. Here's what they would cost. And you need to find out if you will qualify for a subsidy. The way way they decided to set it up is, we're not going to tell you what it costs. We're going to tell you what the net cost to you will be. So you have to fill out a whole bunch of information that will show us what subsidy would be so that instead of telling you that a, that a, that a, a policy that will cost $400 a month, because we're afraid that will drive you away, we're going to tell you that with your subsidy it would only cost you $150 a month to sign up. That hugely complicated everything that they did and made, and, and made what we're now seeing happen unfold. But, you know, talk about hiding costs or hiding information, 
going back to my original point of the Obama administration hunkering down over at the White House, in a government, in, a, in an administration that was elected twice on transparency, open government, every time Jay Carney, every time the president, every time Secretary Sebelius is in front of a camera, they ask him how many people have successfully enrolled, uh, how many people uh, were, were failed to enroll, give us the data, we know you have it. They tap dance around it all day long. Is the Obama administration, Chris, hurting itself by not being quote-unquote transparent in this situation? Yeah, to a degree, I think that they, they probably are. I, I did see that Sebelius now is going to go up to the hill and, and take the grilling that's coming. And, and, that and, will, and by the way, that's, that, that point has shifted back and forth. She was, she wasn't, she showed up on Daily Show, she's back on again. So now I guess the last week. term, it's next, yeah, next, next, next week. So, next you know, I, I suppose it's, it's rolling transparency. <laughs> <laughs> You missed your calling, Chris. <laughs> Spinning is your forte. Rolling transparency. Well, here is the next, the next secretary in the White House. House. Yeah. Right here. <laughs> that Jake Carney beat. Wow, that was impressive. Oh, that was, what's in the name? That was right? Ari Fleischer S. <laughs> that was Ari Fleischer S. Carl Thuman. The other, the, other, the other situation is, is that the, the states, New York State, Maryland, some of the states are doing a better job than the federal government is. Right. So maybe they should have taken the states that have them, that want to use the exchanges and given them the responsibility to take it. But when we talk about Obamacare, the rollout was confusing. The IT behind it didn't work. 12% of Americans feel it was a successful rollout to make everybody happy. The other 88% didn't agree with that 12%. So this paints a big black eye, Congressman Al, on the legacy program from this president. How does he fix this problem, and can it be fixed? Well, I suspect it can be. It's whether anybody at the White House can figure out how. Uh, I, think it, I think they've got a real problem on their hands, and it's a huge embarrassment. I don't know that we've seen the end of it. I think it's too early to, uh, to to say it's a failure or anything like that. Alan Moore than Denise. Yeah, they they have to they've they've got to sort this problem out. The the the, the political uh, unfortunate news for the for the White House is on the heels of the big debate relating to the budget and debt limit and that tied in Obamacare was leave Obamacare alone, let it go, it's the law, and now suddenly the full spotlight is on the education the problems. They will presumably get sorted out. The big question, though, is who will be signing up? They talk about a need for 7 million people to sign up by the end of March. Now, the best guess now is maybe 150,000 people have signed up, but that's not hugely significant because the coverage won't start till January 1st. On top of the fact that what? 30 million Americans don't have well, quality health care. Let's suppose we get 7 million. Let's suppose we get 6. Let's suppose we get 8. Does that solve the problem? No. The question is the demographics of the people who sign up. The whole underlying notion of Obamacare is we're going to get a lot of young 
healthy people into the system who aren't insured and who, who, who don't feel like they need insurance to help pay for older, sicker people with pre-existing conditions. And you need probably six million young healthies to take care of the it's million security to, to take care it's of the, social security health care the million uh, sick people those people are going to sign up the sick the people who couldn't get insurance question is whether those young people will and they get turned off they're not that interested the penalties are not that high that's the real question he's crap well, I have to say I'm one of those six million my husband and I have spent a lot of time on the website the DC system is doing fabulous compared to what's going on in the, in the federal system. And we do like what we're seeing. I mean, it has been very easy to navigate. It's been very easy to understand. And as somebody who's coming off the federal insurance program and going into the private for the first time in her career, I think it's wonderful. I, I, I mean, I'm planning on, on you know, using the system and making sure that others can as well. Congressman Chris. Well, I, I am optimistic, probably more so than, than my Republican friends here at the table, that it's, it's going to work. In fact, in my case, it damn well better work. Um, in, in 2010, in the heart of the campaign, the most significant thing that happened uh, in my family was my wife had breast cancer and had to have a double mastectomy. Oh. So now, you know, we're, we're not covered by anything, uh, and it's very difficult to find health care for us because of my wife's pre-existing condition. So, you know, obviously, uh, I, I voted in favor of the, of the plan my wife's diagnosis, but I'm I'm very glad I did. Uh, you know, now unfortunately for a personal reason, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people in the same boat as, as me, and and to give them the opportunity to have pre-existing conditions covered um, is, frankly, from my perspective, worth all of this right now because I believe it will be worked out. I believe it's going to be successful, um, and I believe that you know, in the end, young people will if the cost isn't ex extravagant, come on board. Congressman Al. I, uh, <clears throat> I want to blame this all on Newt Gingrich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why? Not George W.? Because I don't like him. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> but but it, was, it was Newt Gingrich as speaker who basically destroyed the committee system by having things come out of the speaker's office, they went to the committee, the committee did a dumb show and reported the bill out, and, and uh, subsequent speakers have followed that route. Hence, had the Republicans been willing to get in and, uh, and, and do the usual thing that happens in committees, I suspect we would have come out with a much better bill than one that had to be put together by just one side and had to be put together under great pressure and had to be uh, be put together while everybody's throwing bombs at it, you, you could almost predict that was not going to work very well the first time out. We need to get back to the committee system where all of these things are, are fly-specked and where you find mistakes and change them and where where the, the other party, whichever that may be, the other party gets to present problems, which if the majority party has got any brains, will pay attention to those that are real, not just political BS. Uh, and, and this is going to hold true for a whole bunch of other complicated things. Congressman Chris. Well, you know, you're, out, you're right. I mean, to, to, the way this is rolled out in, in, the, in the context of the whole 
process. You know, it's like trying to change tires on a moving car, which is very difficult to do, obviously. Yes. Um, and I, I will be the first to admit that, that the administration did a horrible job, a horrible job explaining it, explaining the necessity for it to the American public, and not fighting back uh, against those that, that were, were opposed. And, and to be in Congress at the time was exceptionally difficult in terms of uh, reacting to or, or having a conversation with your constituents. You know, and obviously in the 10 election, a lot of us lost because we voted for health care reform. That was certainly my case. But we knew it was coming. You know, you, you knew it was going to happen. But to have the conversation at your town hall meetings, no one wanted to hear it. No one wanted to hear it until you broke it down into its constituent pieces. Which is funny you say that, Chris, because, you know, you look at, for example, middle America, rural middle America. Right where there's a huge Tea Party base and no, no offense to people living in single wides in the middle of fields in the middle of Arkansas, but that Tea Party base, these are people who in some numbers are not insured at all, right. but they're the ones down with Obamacare, right. down with Obamacare. That's just poor messaging, not a poor policy. Exactly. Which is why I ended up voting for the policy in the end. But Politics and policy are hand in hand, and you, part of politics is messaging correctly. Carl Tubin? Uh, <clears throat> following up on what Al said, uh, the late Senator Kennedy in his book talks about the fact that Richard Nixon came to him and asked him to help put together a health care program that he could sell to the Congress. And Kennedy said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'd have, probably have to compromise too much. And, and he admitted afterward that he should have done it and got it incrementally done. If he had gotten something then, it would have grown and grown and grown, and we might not have yeah. this glitch that we have. Yeah, we, I mean, we talked about Nixon in the 72 State of the Union saying now is the time yeah. for health care, a, a well-regulated health care for all. But, Alan Moore, I, I want to go to you, because when we, when we talk about all this, you know, we... Because America has such a short span, they don't remember the fact that, A, the same arguments we're hearing about Obamacare are the same arguments we heard about Social Security in 32. It's the same arguments we heard against Medicare and Medicaid. It is the same arguments that we've heard about many marginally successful or now everybody embraces programs like Social Security, Medicare, Don't you Medicaid. let the government fool around with my Medicare. Exactly. <laughs> Does the short attention span of America, is that part of not having everybody embrace or is that energizing the Tea Party well, base? No, there's, there's certainly something to the fact that there's always going to be negative uh, reports and, and discussion. Medicare and Social Security, when they passed, both enjoyed a majority of both Democrat and Republican votes. In the case of Obamacare, the, the, the so-called Obamacare, there was not a single solitary Republican vote in either house. That is rarely a recipe for making massive change that works. And, and, and the thing just before, I want to touch on what, what both Chris and Denise said. Chris can't get insurance 
because of his wife's pre-existing condition, and he's got kids who need to be covered, and he needs to be covered. He's thrilled that there's now an opportunity that opens a door for him. Denise has got kids, and she desperately wants to get reasonable, affordable insurance. They're part of this group that I'm talking about that's waiting in line, looking on the li- online, wanting to sign up on day one. They're, they're, they're going to get guaranteed benefits and the packages that have to be offered and they and and although neither one of them is old enough to 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 normally be treated as a senior seniors can't pay more than three times what the youngest people pay which is about half what it used to be it used to be you could charge seniors five or six times the only way that becomes affordable is if you get younger healthy people who are not currently insured to pay proportionately more than they would normally have but to Alan, pay, and, and you've got subsidies to do it. No, but Alan, what, what, is, but Alan, is but, that going to happen? No, I get that, but, but here's the problem, is when you're talking about a 20-something new college grad that may be trying to start up his own company, has no coverage, uh, and obviously he's going to be past 26, that 27 right, to 27. 32 range, that 27 to 32 range is saying, look, it is cheaper for me to pay the penalty Absolutely. than it is for me to pay the $500 a month the, the penal- that could be the cost of me the, on top of the $5,000 deductible I'm going to pay if I do pen- The penalties are, are way too low to, to be able to legitimately call this a, a true individual mandate, and that's the challenge that lies ahead. Are those people going to come in and sign up, or are they going to look at it, consider it, and say, I've been rolling the dice. I'm going to continue to roll the dice, and if I get sick, I can join in a year, or if I get sick, I can go to the emergency room the way I would have last year, and they'll still have to treat me. Alan, I'll tell you what. If, if this had come out when I was 30, 20, or, or now, oh, right. 10 years ago. No, 12 years ago. I don't want to get too crazy. 12 years ago, if this had come out when I was 30 and 100 pounds and healthy and everything, I paid the $150 penalty all day long, okay? That's, I'm not, because now what you've got is a situation where why do I have to subsidize for somebody who doesn't, who I don't need the service? You're subsidizing them anyway in, in added cost to insurance and added cost to hospital stays because they have to pay for. You and I understand that, Chris. The problem is the general public, the 32-year-old in Arkansas doesn't. Oh, I'm going to disagree with you, Justin, because the 32 in Arkansas has probably got kids at this point in time, and if they don't have kids, then they're going to have Oh, my God, that's a gross generalization. No, it's not, Justin. I'll tell you what. I had kids at 32, and you know what? I needed insurance, and I was lucky to have insurance because I worked for the federal government. And I'm damn glad I did because I had a C-section. If I had to pay... You know, out of pocket for a C-section, it would have killed me. I can't tell you how many friends have declared bankruptcy because of breast cancer. People, people so are I can waiting. tell you that people in their 30s will be paying for it because if they haven't had the cancer, then their friends will have the if cancer. You and they go look, go if you go look at, if you go look at the figures, at the census figures, people are waiting longer to have kids. They're they're waiting well into their 30s to have. They're waiting longer to even get married in these days. And as a single 30-year-old, whether I'm living in Arkansas, Hawaii, or Maine, I don't have to pay it. And why would I want to? Uh, you know what? I'll scribe that check to 150 bucks on top of the taxes I pay. I've got a solution. What's that, Congressman Al? That if you haven't signed up, by the time you're 30, you can never sign up. 
So, wait a minute. So, how does that, how does that fix the scenario that Chris is talking about? Because it's the, they're depending on the young kids to subsidize the older population. Obviously, you, don't, you can't apply it to people who are already past that age. But, in, but you're talking about the fact that in the future, there are not going to be enough young people signing up. If you, and, and, you, and you penalize them for not doing it. If you just say, okay, if you've decided that you can take care of your own health care for the rest of your life, that's fine. You've got until age 30 to figure that out. And after that, you're on your own. Everybody else will be covered. So you'll turn them away at the emergency room? Yeah. You would? (laughs) Wow. Probably the most Republican thing you've ever said, Al. I've got to tell you something. That's, we would love to sign you up for the GOP. That is not that's Republican. Much, that's, that, that's I mean, even Republicans what, are turning no, him away. That's pretty much what Governor Perry said, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So He's you and Governor Perry are in the same boat. I don't mind. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you might if you thought about it. Yeah, no kidding. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue. We're going to take a quick two-minute break. When we come back, we're going to continue the discussion on, on the president's issue of getting messaging out something that has eluded him for the past five years. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom on Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, yeah. Washington, D.C. Uh, continuing our discussion from uh, last hour, you know, the, I think the one consensus that everybody around the table will, will have is the fact that 
messaging is something that this president has not been able to do well. Uh, anytime he's got to get a difficult message out, he either disappears, goes silent, or just hides somewhere in the White House or takes a foreign trip. Uh, the reality is, right now, Americans are looking for a leader. Americans are looking for leadership out of the White House. Congressman Al, are they getting it out of President Obama right now? I don't think they're getting all they should I mean, in terms of leadership, in terms of specifics. I, I, I frankly don't understand, uh, and this goes clear back to uh, the beginning of, of his term, uh, why he laid back when, you know, Lyndon Johnson would begin with all four feet. Uh, and I, I thought, well, he's just going to let the Congress um, moosh around in this for a while, and then I don't understand it. Uh, I think he's a good man who, uh, who who maybe is a little inexperienced for the job. He needed another term in the Senate, perhaps. Bob Hines, Republican side, what do you think? I think pretty much the same thing Al does. We have to remember that this is a man who was a state senator. He was elected in the first two years he was a senator and he decided to run for president when he was less than two full years in the Senate and he's, he, he doesn't have enough legislative background. When he was, you know, he's basically, he is a community organizer at heart. He, you know, people's choice, he wants to do this, he wants to, he doesn't have the facility, I don't think, to you know, gather people around the table, sit them down, and say, we're going to sit in this room until we solve our problem. But, but Bob, you, you would think that even as a community organizer, I mean, look, we, we all know some community organizers. I actually know a couple out of Chicago. I know a couple out of Detroit, out of New York City. These are people who actually do that, who actually get a, a group of people who may be disparate, who may disagree, around a table and say, look, we as a community have got to come together. But, but that's not government. No. You know, That's government good. is a structured process, and you have to understand the process. And he doesn't understand the process, and of course, it's, he's also unfortunate that at the time he was, the time he is in presidency, uh, you know, the the structure of the of the of the congressional section of the United States government is having a very hard time. Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I mean, just to echo these guys, he was elected uh, uh, with with uh, a, a sort of a, a hope and a prayer, um, and we all wanted him to succeed. I mean, most of us succeed. Most most Americans um, really did want him to succeed because we want the country to succeed. Um, we've enumerated what some of us see as as many failures. When it came time for re-election, he had the good fortune, as some pres as sitting presidents sometimes do, to have a a deeply flawed opponent. He was certainly vulnerable and 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 should have been beatable, but he wasn't. Um, now that the fact that he won didn't mean that everyone endorsed everything he'd ever done, including Obamacare. It was almost in spite of that, notwithstanding what what people like to say. But he he does not have what what I remember Elliot Richardson once described as lacking generalship, lacking the ability to take charge kick ass, take names, 
Um, his anger yesterday that he expressed, he, nobody's madder than me. He hides it well. Al was wondering what it's like uh, behind the scenes, whether, how he shows anger. He doesn't show it on TV, not especially when he's got 20 human props behind him to try to make his point, and then he, he sort of goes political. He just he doesn't do anger well. He doesn't do leadership well, and, uh, and I think we, we pay a price. One of, the comments, one of the comments I heard, uh, Chris Carney, about the president from a couple of Republicans and actually one Democrat, uh, the, the president in his messaging has always had a problem. A great example was the day after the, de the debt ceiling CR deal was struck. Instead of showing leadership and saying, look, we're all going to work together, we're all going to, you know, this was a big mistake, we understand that, we will work better to gain your confidence, he comes out and lectures on his presser that afternoon. Uh, is that a lack of political prowess? Is it an inexperience, or is it a combination of both? Well, and did I, he miss an opportunity? Um, well, missing an opportunity is something that politicians do all the time, because you have lots of different ways to talk about an issue. And, and his reflex, uh, I think, is to be a teacher, a professor, uh, more so than, than perhaps the a leader. Well, I don't want. I mean, you know, as as a former professor, I think I I, I led classes and, and led in terms of of edification and learning. Um, that doesn't answer the you're trying to inspire a nation, however. And it's it's you know I I tend to agree on most things, most policies with the president. Not not all certainly, but but many. But it it. it he gets, this is the problem that you have, you end up getting uh, too processy in your explanation rather than talking about the importance of the nub of the issue. And, and if, if that was done, you know, he, he is giving the, the American electorate the, the benefit of the doubt on, on, their, on the intellect. You know, he, he's taking the arguments to an intellectual level that the American public doesn't want to hear. They want to understand the nub the importance of the nub of the issue, and focus on that. Stay on the message. When, when you, you know, and, and, and that's, that's politics 101, is staying on message. And if you can do that, you'll, you'll be successful. Well, key, key, but it just strikes me as that it can be done without the condescending lecturing tone of a professor. We want a leader. Well, we want an embracer. We're not we want a coalition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea, the concept, the concept. Denise crap. Thing we have done as a Democratic Party is not get close enough to the business community. Um, and I say that because, you know, when people think about business communities, they think Republicans. When they think Democrats, they think labor. And that's a problem, I think, for our party because, quite frankly, we need to have more Democrats that know how to make quick decisions. We need to have folks that understand that you need to make decisions in a timely manner because there are repercussions for business. So I, I, I categorize the entire Democratic Party and encourage everybody as Democrats to say, hey, wait a second, talk to your business counterparts, fully understand that if you do make decisions or you don't, what the implications are to businesses and how that is a ripple effect. Because when you don't, and I've seen that quite frankly a lot in my career, both as a political and as on the Hill, that when you don't make these decisions, people hurt. And if you don't understand how they hurt, then you're not doing them a good job. Uh, Carl Tubin. Minute 30, last word. Uh, I disagree with a lot of what's been said. I think that uh, this is a man 
So since day one in the White House, uh, get rid of them. They have fought with them. They have they have done everything they could. You know, they, they, this whole last thing with Obamacare, put it on the CR. Uh, he 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 was right in what he did, and maybe break the 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 whole effort of every time a, a, a CR comes up or every time a, a, uh, <clears throat> a dead ceiling comes up, we have to have these big fights. And uh, uh, he, he, I think he's gotten a little better with congressional relations with his new chief of staff and some others. Not perfect. Uh, when you look back and you, you see presidents who, who come to office and bring his whole gang in to help him. Carter failed at that, uh, and, I, and I think he, he failed at that to some degree. Uh, then you have a person like Roosevelt and Kennedy who brought their people in, but they, know what to, they knew what to do. And even though Eisenhower at the beginning of Kennedy said, I think this is, uh, I don't have to handle uh, the processes and, and negotiations and all that, he did. Well, uh, I'm going to let that be the last word. Uh, I want to, I'm starting a new segment that, uh, today that we're going to have every week. It's called Dude, You're a Clown. After my tirade last week, got some good feedback on my tirade last week on Ted Cruz. So I'm starting up this new one today. Alan Grayson, Dude, You're a Clown. Alan Grayson likened the Tea Party to the KKK. The Florida Democrat who was elected, unelected, and subsequently elected by the constituency in Central Florida, namely Orlando, uh, came in and, and basically said, complete with the images of KKK-like figures in the background of saying that the Tea Party is basically the Klan incarnate. Congress, quote, this is an email, he says, Congressman Alan Grayson deserves your support. He is and only he is saying things that you are thinking and so much need to be said. I would love to find out who sent that email. Congressman Grayson is not doing any favors to the country. He's not doing any favors. Certainly not helping the political situation here in uh, Washington, D.C. Stop the demagoguery. Start working on compromise. Stop being a clown, Alan Grayson. God, that feels good. I like that segment. Now we're going to go to my second favorite segment. It's Tell Me a Story. But before we get to that, uh, a couple of things we want to know. Um, last week, we actually lost two, two really good statesmen uh, from here in Washington and two good old school members of Congress. Uh, I want to talk about Bill Young for a second. Bill Young, who represented the west coast of Florida for many, many years. Uh, I have a special fondness for, for Bill Young, the chairman of Armed Services, who during his time did a lot of good things for America's military. He was a huge supporter of veterans. He was a huge supporter of our military, promoted a strong defense force, and, and really put it into, into, into aspects that made the military feel like they were wanted, loved, and welcomed in Congress. Uh, he, he was, he was a, a great Floridian, a great man. Our hearts go out to his state legislator in Tallahassee. Uh, that's a loss that the state of Florida is going to feel, and, and, and we, can't, uh, we can't say enough good things, or at least I can't say enough good things about Chairman Young. You're going to be missed, uh, Mr. Chairman. 
Uh, and then, of course, the other big loss last week uh, was one of the one of the notable speakers of our time, Congressman Al. You want to talk about uh, yes. Speaker Foley? Yes. Uh, the one thing that I think Bill Young and, and Tom Foley had in common were they were very nice people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they got their things done uh, by being nice, uh, not that they weren't... And worked with both sides. And worked with both sides. When Tom Foley came to Congress, <coughs> he was in his buddy's fourth term, I think, when it became common knowledge or, or common consensus that he would someday be speaker. Uh, and that turned out to be the case. Uh, and the reason was that he was a, a, a thoughtful person who could explain issues well uh, and was frequently members would cluster around him he could explain it and, and, and he had leadership that way. There's a funny story about that. I remember one of the young members of the Washington State delegation came to him and said, why are all these people voting for this bill? And so he explained it to them. And a few minutes passed, and the guy looks up, and Foley had voted against it. And he goes over to Foley, and he said, you told me to vote for this bill. And he said, no, I didn't. He said, well, what? He said, you asked me why people were voting for it. I told you why people were voting for it. I disagree with that. I voted against it. <laughs> and somebody, someone said that Foley could uh, tell you three sides to any issue. Uh, that, that was frustrating to some people, but it showed what a thoughtful person he was. Uh, and he was kind, gentle. I saw him once show a side of him that many people wished they saw more of him. It was in a Democratic Whips meeting. Uh, it was over the bank, the, the so-called House Bank, you know, and because he had decided to go ahead and disband the bank. And Foley listened to a whole lot of this and then leaned forward, and he could be very stern. And he said, will you tell me why it is you want a bank in which, by a mere majority vote of the House, everything in your account can be made available to the public? A bank in which you can make no loan, a bank that pays you no interest, why do you want it? And then there was silence, and the meeting moved on to something else. So he, 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 was, he was extremely thoughtful. Uh, and it turned out, I think, to probably not be to his advantage at a time when people wanted, you know, wanted somebody to be pounding the gavel. Bob Hines. Um, Mr. Foley, uh, when speaker, the minority, a good friend of mine, Bob Michael. And the two of them, the speaker and the minority leader in the House, could not have been farther apart in policy if they had tried on a basically day-to-day -day reality. However, they were close friends. They worked together. They found solutions to problems. Uh, 
Bob wrote a marvelous article in the Washington Post, a eulogy, if you will, almost to, to the speaker, that laid out the relationship, how it worked, how well it worked, how they were able to come together, not as great personal friends, but as political friends, able to solve problems. And I would hope that an awful lot of people in the House, and some in the Senate as well, would think, would read what Bob said and think about Foley and think about the relationship and recognize that the best thing that could possibly happen for this country would be that the United States Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, would see in the relationship with those two men what is needed to do, be done in the House if we're going to be able to solve so many of our problems without literally going to war. Agreed. Here, here. And, and, and I, I, I would add, I talked to Heather Foley, and Bob Michael was the last person to visit Tom while he still was able to speak. Alan Moore? Um, the president yesterday talked about how angry he is about the rollout of Obamacare, how they're bringing in some sort of plane loads or truckloads of technical experts. What they tried to build was a state-of-the-art car, like a Prius, and now they're bringing in a thousand or so mechanics who are Prius experts. The question is, do they have a Prius to work on, or is it a Yugo? And either way, this is such a disaster that I don't see how Secretary Sebelius survives. I'm thinking that probably within the next three months, she's going to quietly say that she needs to spend more time, more with, time her with her family. Yep. <coughs> there it is. Interesting, interesting story. Well, it kind of relates to what we've all been talking about in, in this idea of working together. Um, back in 2008, my two oldest boys were on a cross-country team up in Pennsylvania, and it was the state championship race. And they go to a little school called Elk Lake. It's a single-A school, very small. And uh, not one of those kids on that team got an individual medal that day to give medals to the top 25. But as a team, they won the state title. I mean, sometimes you learn from kids how things should go. Wow, good story. Good and, story. And I wish Congress, I swear to God, I wish Congress would pay attention to things like that. Amazing. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Yeah, I just want to go back and uh, <clears throat> I want to go back and, and reminisce a little bit. I. I met Tom Foley first in 1976 when a fellow, a friend of mine who was president of Young Democratic Clubs of America from Seattle, um, and I went to a leadership conference and he took me to a, a round table with Foley. Uh, then I came, when I came back in 77, 78 to Washington and started working, I, uh, I worked with Mrs. Harriman on Democratic dinners. And, and got to meet Tom again and the speaker and others. But there's, there's one thing about, there's one thing with Tom that you have to throw into the, the mix is Heather. Heather was his unpaid staff person um, and, and did a lot of good things along the way. And one of the things in the, in the paper today, which I really laughed at, was there was a meeting when she was in a meeting with, with uh, Speaker O'Neill and O'Neill was smoking uh, his, cigar. his cigar 
Heather turned to him and said, would you please put out that cigar? And he did. Denise, crap, tell me a story. Like many of you, I'm about to pay for Barbies and American Girl doll and probably a lot of other frippery for Christmas. And like many of you, come January 15th, I'm going to be paying my credit card bill. So we need January 15th. We need Congress to be in session January 16th and January 17th. So I encourage all of you to make sure that you are calling your members at Congress over the next 60 days and saying, please, please work together so that we can all pay our collective debts. Our collective debts, including our rent, our mortgage, and as silly as it may seem, our bills for American Girl doll and Barbie. Wow, good one. Good one. Um, I want to go back and talk about uh, part of, of the Bill Young team, and that, that's going to go to my story, is uh, one, of, one of the greatest, greatest resources that Bill Young had was his wife. Uh, to show uh, how strong a backer of her husband she was, uh, she's made a point of making sure that his funeral uh, next week is not politicized. Uh, to the point where uh, Mrs. Young sent a letter to Charlie Crist, the former Republican governor turned Democrat, now running as a Democrat for governor here. Basically, the stint of the email, or the, or the, the sentiment of the email was, you are not welcome here. I do not want my husband's memory and funeral to be a political sideshow for you and your political causes. Do not come to the funeral. And it wasn't just Charlie Crist. It was others that may not have always agreed with him, but would show up just to make a political sideshow of it. She sent it to a county commissioner in Pinellas County and another candidate that's going to be running for Congress in 2014. I, I say kudos to Mrs. Young for that. Let's remember the great statesman that he was. Let's not make it a political sideshow. I think that's absolutely wonderful of her. This is also the same woman that during a speech in 2006, uh, during the State of the Union address, was removed by Capitol Police for wearing a T-shirt that said, support our troops. She was removed from the gallery by Capitol Police during a State of the Union. That's how supportive of our military, the Young family, and Chairman Bill Young was. So kudos to her. Uh, again, our thoughts go out to the Young family, obviously the Foley family, uh, people we thought very highly of. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, same time, same station. Uh, live here from Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. I want to thank our roundtable today, Congressman Al, as always, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, uh, Carl Tubin, Denise Krepp. Special thanks to Congressman Chris Carney. Thanks for joining us, sir. I always love having you. Uh, we're going to leave this last few minutes uh, moment of silence for uh, Speaker Foley and uh, Congressman Young. Folks, have a great week. Bye-bye.